If you are new to our church, I am Jeff Coulter. I'm a member here and also serve as lead pastor. And uh, we're going to launch back into our series. We've had a few weeks off from this, but back in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament there. So if you could turn there, it would be helpful this morning to have the word open for you. Otherwise, you might get distracted or confused. Uh, We left off a few weeks ago through, we finished chapter 5. Uh, Nehemiah, and so this morning we, we will look at chapter 6. I know the bulletin and email said we'll go into chapter 7, but that's not true. I made a decision to end at chapter 6 and never communicated that to other people. So chapter 6 this morning is the, uh, the goal, and we're going to look at uh, Nehemiah's response here in the midst of struggle. In 1963, a crew of 129 men began a voyage to test the the depth range of the newest submarine with the latest technology. And below a a safety ship called the Skylark, the new submarine was named the USS Thresher and and circled deeper and deeper, performing deep dive trials. And during the deepest part of the dive, the submarine would descend 100 feet, radio to the safety ship, and continue its descent. When the submarine came close to what they thought would be the deepest it could go, the Skylark, the safety boat on the surface, received a garbled communication that a minor difficulty had arisen. That was the last communication they heard from anyone just before the submarine imploded due to enormous external pressure. Our bodies are are created to handle so much external pressure without giving way. That's true physically, as, you, as they dive deep into the deepest parts of the ocean, and it's also true spiritually and emotionally in the work and ministry that we partake in. And this morning, the chapter in chapter 6, we're going to look at how Nehemiah sought to withstand this external pressure in his life. Just after having the pressures of his enemies in chapter 4 and deals with that and keeps the work going to build the wall, he deals with, in chapter 5, the internal pressure of the issues with his own people, mistreating one another. And as you read this book, as you've followed along as we've gone through the series, trouble is not very far from Nehemiah. Every attack, though, that we will see in this chapter is aimed directly at Nehemiah, personally. What we learned from this, and and many have mentioned this in commentaries, is that there's a steep price to pay for anyone who's a leader. You know, in, in football, if you take out the quarterback, most likely the team will struggle most of the time. But that's the center point, really, of the team to keep it going. If, if in, in war, if you remove the commanding officer, the enemy will have an advantage. And so the enemy here in Nehemiah is aiming straight at Nehemiah, the leader, building the wall. And once the walls are fully rebuilt and the gates are put in place, the only way for these enemies to regain control over the city would be through a siege or a, a direct attack. And, and they don't want to go against the king. They don't want to be known as going against the king. So this is the opportunity to make their strike And it's a strike against Nehemiah. Satan knows that if the leaders we follow and look to imitate for good or for ill, if he could cause one to falter or fall, 
Others will be disillusioned and perhaps grow cynical in the wake of the tragedy. So God's enemies cast their eyes here on Nehemiah. If they can take him down, everything will look like it will crumble in effect. And Nehemiah at this point is tired. I mean, he, he has to be tired at this point. We can end, only handle so much pressure and conflict or sooner or later we'll break. And so he'll pray in this chapter, but now, O oh Lord, strengthen my hands. A simple prayer. He's like, God, my hands hurt. My hands are tired. I'm working, I'm doing this for the protection of your people and I need help. And yet there's, there's so much behind those words as we'll see. Nehemiah knows that if this wall is going to be finished, it will have to happen because God is going to work in the midst of it. Nehemiah is like us. He's running out of juice. And he knows that God is the one who holds all things together, and so he will cry out to him for help in the midst of this trial. So here's the main idea, and, and I added to this too. I'm throwing curveballs all over the place this morning. After talking to a brother this morning, just a few minutes before the service, about the passage, I'm going to add to the main idea. It should be on the screen, so if you're taking notes, add this three words afterwards. Our enemy never stops his work against the kingdom of God, but God wins. Amen? And here's the three points as we walk through it. The enemy's interest, the enemy's implication, and the enemy's intimidation. So we're going to cover just chapter 6 this morning. So if you haven't turned, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chairs and in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we encourage you to take that with you. It'll be helpful to you to be in the Word this morning and to take that home and spend time in it this week. So first, the enemy's interest. We'll read the passage as we walk through it this morning. As I said before, the clock is ticking on, on God's enemies. And if they don't stop the work now, if they don't end what's going on, they'll be too late for them to, to have their, their opportunity to take Jerusalem back. So verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hekaphirim in the plain of Ono. They intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Fear has gripped the enemy, and they're moving in for another attack. You see the desperation, right? Four times they're reaching out for this meeting. Their, their wounded pride would not be appeased until Nehemiah had been humiliated. And so they put the pressure on him to meet and it, it might seem from the outside like well, maybe they're coming to actually to, to work together finally, to, to come and, and be united in this. It may seem from the outside that, that, that this is a good thing, right? The enemy's coming now and we're, we can just, we can get our, our ducks in a row and be fine going forward. But Nehemiah doesn't buy it. And if you've been in this book any time with us, you know why, right? They have a sole purpose and Nehemiah won't come. He won't go, though, primarily because the job isn't done. I mean, it's almost done, but it wasn't completely done. And so Nehemiah says no. He says no to this opportunity, although it could have been possibly for, for, the, for the hope and for the good for the people, but he says no. And leaders must learn to say no 
even if everyone else is saying yes. Some leaders have yet to learn this lesson. Not every opportunity is a good opportunity or the right one, so a leader needs to develop discernment on which ones they must say no to. If a leader is, is stuck and convinced on trying to prove themselves or to try to prove their leadership abilities, they will be easily swayed to say yes to many things that they should say no to. There is a stark difference between living for the approval of God and living for the approval of man. Good leaders learn that God's approval outweighs every, everyone else on earth. It is solely for God and his approval that they should live for. He says back in verse three, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times this way and I answered them in the same manner. I wonder if it's significant that Nehemiah says, I cannot come down. And maybe I'm just reading into it, but I get to do that because I'm the preacher. We know geographically that Ono is lower than Jerusalem, but when he says, I cannot come down, I wonder if there's more to that statement. I wonder if we can just apply it. When we're intent on on something that isn't God's will, even though it's appealing and attractive, it's always a step down, isn't it? When you have a promotion at, at work ahead of you, but it requires then for you to miss Sunday morning gathering with the church, you need to ask yourself, is God more glorified by this career move? Sure, you might have more income. Sure, you might have more stability in life. Sure, you can put away more money and invest and have a proper retirement. All good and godly things in many ways. But is God more glorified in that move? Or, switching gears completely, you single people, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, although I should. Occasionally a pastor, I feel like we should just line up the single people and I just kind of do this. Some of you might be at that point, I don't know. Single people, you've found that special someone and your heart goes pitter-patter. Will that special person lead you toward Christ? or away from him. Evangelistic dating is a lie. It is way too risky, friends. I have heard it all in years of ministry. You don't understand, Pastor Jeff, I get to share the gospel with them. Friends, that is way too risky. There are many things in life for us that, that we should say no to and say, like Nehemiah, I cannot come down. Even though it looks really good, even though it looks promising, if it takes you off the path from glorifying God with your life, it is not worth it. And then the right answer is I cannot come down. See, the work that Nehemiah was doing in Jerusalem wasn't great because the world thought it was great. In fact, the very opposite is true. It was a great work because God's very name was at stake. That's what makes the work great. Those walls were going to protect God's people. 
That's what made his work great. What work are you doing for the glory of God? You know, as Christians, all of us, not just pastors, we're called to make disciples. We're called to, to, to link arms with other, others who, who know Jesus and help them follow Jesus. That's our job. We're called to make disciples as Christians. So even if you work a nine-to-five job or you have a full schedule as a student in school, your job still, your work is to make disciples. And God's name is at stake in your work, in your life as well. And if you're trusting God, walking in purity, and thanking him for what he gives, you're doing a great work just as much as Nehemiah was, even though you're not building walls around a city. See, putting walls up around the city was not, was not the main goal. It was his dedication to God's name, his promises, and his people. That's what his work was. So what work are you doing for the glory of God? Think through that. Being a faithful husband, a faithful father, a loving wife and mother, Friends, that is doing a great work for the glory of God. Never have anyone looked down upon that. Raising kids to love God and serve him is a great, mighty, exhausting work. Being an honest student in school who is kind to others and looks to serve others rather than being served themselves is a great work for the glory of God. In your job, being a hard worker, honorable, trustworthy, friend, that is a great work for the glory of God. So don't look down on the work that God has given you. Look to serve others and love others and look to train up others to follow Jesus Christ for his honor and glory. So we've seen the enemy's interest here in chapter 6. Now we look to the enemy's implication, verses 5 through 9. Verse 5, in the same way, Samballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you, have say, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen our hands. Normally in this time, uh, letters between officials were sealed in private, and Sam Ballot knew that the servant who delivered this letter would read it. It was open, and, and along the way, countless others would read the letter as well. Friends, the true thing about a rumor is you only have to launch it with one word of gossip, and it will spread like a virus from person to person, growing more and more malicious as it travels. This is a whispering campaign against Nehemiah. Humans seem to have an insatiable 
appetite for discreditable information about each other. When rumors spread, the subject of the talking eventually gets hurt. Even if the rumor is later proven to be false, the victim of gossip will still suffer. One of the most difficult things in our lives is being able to ignore liars and people who slander or undermine us. It can be tempting, too, to, to fight for ourselves, to give our, our, our opponents a piece of our mind. But as Christians, we should remind ourselves that the Lord is better in that battle than us. Have you ever had a rumor circulated about you? Has someone ever presented you with the ways that your actions and motives are being misrepresented? Have people circulated false interpretations of what you said or what you're doing? How should we respond to this misinformation about ourselves? You know, it's never easy to handle accusations against us. But the experience of this can be very educational if we'll allow it teaching us something about ourselves, about, about the scriptures, and ultimately about God. We can always be learning more about ourselves and receiving criticism, even unkind criticism, can be helpful if we allow it. We need to be honestly examining our hearts and see if there's any, any bit of truth, any grain of truth in the accusation that's, that's brought. It may come with very destructive and, and hurtful words, but it doesn't mean there's not something there that could be true even if it's done in a cruel way. I think it'd be good for us as Christians to remind ourselves of this and to, and to pray along with the psalmist in Psalm 7. Oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil, and then Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That verses there should, should give us hope in the midst of difficulties, things that are said about us that hurt. And yet, should we stop then in the midst of the work that we're doing and try to track down all the people who may have heard this rumor? One quote that has kept me afloat, and I've shared this before, it's probably been a number of years, but kept me afloat is from an anonymous author. It's lengthy, but I think it's helpful. So listen to this. It says, stick with your work. Do not flinch because the lion roars. Do not stop to stone the devil's dogs. Do not fool away your time chasing the devil's rabbits. Do your work. Let liars lie. Let sectarians quarrel. Let critics malign. Let enemies accuse. Let the devil do his worst. But see to it, nothing hinders you from fulfilling with joy the work God has given you. He has not commanded you to be admired or esteemed. He has never bidden you to defend your character. He has not set you at work to contradict falsehood about yourself, which Satan's or God's servants may start to peddle or to track down every rumor that threatens your reputation. If you do these things, you will do nothing else. You will be at work for yourself and not for the Lord. Keep at your work. Let your aim be as steady as a star. You may be assaulted, wronged, insulted, slandered, wounded, and rejected, misunderstood, or assigned impure motives. You may be abused by foes, forsaken by friends, and despised and rejected of men. But see to it with steadfast determination, with unfaltering zeal, that you pursue the great purpose of your life and object of your being, until at last you can say, I have finished the work you have gave me to do. Friends, those are words that we all need to take to heart in the midst of life. 
I think our, our temptation in those moments when things are said about us is to, is to go battle that and then go find everyone else to prove that it's wrong. And it will distract us. But what should we, what, what, how should we allow this to happen? What should we do about this? What does Nehemiah do? Look at verse 8. He says, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. He makes one statement, as we know. One, contradicting what he said and moves on. Those on the side of truth should do what Nehemiah does here. He keeps doing the work. He does answer the critics. He does give uh, proof of what he's done and yet, and correcting the falsehood, and yet he does not allow that to control him and take him off the work. He could have very easily done that. See, persistence in the truth will shine light on those things that are false and deceits. Spurgeon said in his book, Lectures to My Students, and this was a book written to pastors primarily, he said, your blameless life will be your best defense. And I've said this to, to, to many and throughout ministry and counsel, friends, the truth always comes out. The truth always comes out. Truth always wins against falsehood. So remind yourself of this and keep at your work. See, when Sam Ballad here is suggesting that Nehemiah was preparing not only to bite the hand that feeds him, but he's also, he's saying, going to cut off the hand that allowed him to come and do the work in the first place. He's making huge claims. He, he's saying, essentially, Nehemiah has come to rebuild this city, and he wants to install himself as king. And furthermore, he's propped up prophets to, to speak this way about him, all of which is false. And in this, the, the enemy is, is attempting to, to weaken the hands of the workers through fear. But how does he respond? He prays, oh God, strengthen my hands. Again, we find in the book of Nehemiah, help comes through prayer. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. The enemy longed for their hands to be discouraged, and so Nehemiah pleads with God for strength, and God answers. And how much do we need this in our lives, in the midst of the struggles and suffering that we face? Even the prayers of Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4, says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. You see the, the hope and the trust of, of these in the Old Testament? You know, I was just saying it before, you know, the, the fact that Nehemiah had such trust in God. We, on this side, can read Revelation, right? We can see, as my friend said, we know who wins, Nehemiah didn't have the book of Revelation. And yet you see this, this faith and trust in his God. He knew his God. And he relied on him. So the attempt from the enemy is not working. And last, this last point is they level up the work here in the enemy's intimidation. Look at verse 10. There's some fun names to pronounce here. Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, the son of Mehebel, 
who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid." So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elu in the 52 days. Pause for a second there. 52 days. Just circle that. If you go to a map and, and, and plot out the size of Jerusalem, it is astounding that they finished this in 52 days. I mean, nothing happens here in Pierce County in 52 days. They've been working on that highway since 2004, since I've been here, like going to Tacoma. 52 days is when it's done. Verse 16, and when all of enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. See, if they couldn't now, and the second point, if they couldn't accuse him of being a political rebel, they try now to make him a religious transgressor. They knew that the most damaging thing they could do against a man of honor was to defame him and his character and his spiritual character primarily. And his question, he says there, should, I, should such a man as I run away and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? Shows, it shows us that Nehemiah's respect for God and his law and, and how he views worship through the temple. Nehemiah was not a priest and he wasn't allowed into the inner portions of the temple. And Shemaiah, Shemaiah suggesting something that was contrary to God's law. How did Nehemiah know this? You can go ahead and answer. How did Nehemiah know this? He knows the scriptures. Really hard question, right? Real simple answer. He knew the word. He, he actually read the word. He knew that it was against God's law to do such things. And he, he shows us right here very quickly that he's a man of God's word. That's the only way he would know this. How are we at being people of the word? Let me ask this. Based upon how much you read currently of the word, would you have known what God had said if you were in his position? You didn't have Google back then. Couldn't hop on social media and ask Pastor John what he thinks. What we're seeing here is a man after God in the word. That's the only way he knows. See, the Bible keeps us focused on glorifying God and obedience to him. 
And we're blessed. I mean, I'm not trying to, to put down Google and, and, and commentaries and all these things that help. I'm not saying don't look at that, just have the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. But really, for us, there should be no excuse for us today to not know the Word because there's so many tools to help us know the Word. And this is just as much uh, chastisement for, for you as it is for me. We need to be people of the word that helps us to know God and to know how to live rightly. Nehemiah knew the word. He knew what it said. And he was bold in, in, in how he is applying the word, unafraid. But the second thing I, I, I notice is that Nehemiah knew himself. Why do I say that? Some of you might remember the story in 2 Chronicles 26 of King Uzziah. He began his life in a very helpful, right way, right? He, in in 2 Chronicles 26.5, he says, He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And so there's good things about this king, right? He sought after God, he feared him, and God would continue to answer in his life. But that didn't last long for Uzziah. Just a few verses later, 11 verses later, we read, but when he was strong, the king, Uzziah, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And you know what God did? God struck him with leprosy. That was mercy, just so you know. God could have killed him. But he answers. Nehemiah at this point, the way that he's going, he is hot stuff. He is a good leader. He has proven it in, in time and time again. He battles the enemies in chapter 4, right, and continues to get the people to continue to work, right, with sword in one hand and trial in the other. They're going to build the wall. Chapter 5, there's this internal issues that's going on, and Nehemiah dives in and deals with that and, and refuses, do you remember, refuses to take the king's money. He's going to give of his own accord because everyone else was taking money and taking loans. Nehemiah is, and now he's dealt with these three idiots, and he's now this at the top of where he's at. And he could very easily, just like us, begin to believe how great he really is, just like King Uzziah. When the wall is almost finished, in record time, he was powerful, and the temptation was strong for him to grow in, in, in pride about his own strength, and yet Nehemiah discerns his own heart. His reliance was not on himself, it was on the Lord. And he rejects Shemaiah's advice, and he knew that God had not given him this word. Because in God's word, it forbade him from going into the inner portions of the temple. And when God forbids us from doing one thing in one place, he will not contradict himself by telling us to do it in another. God is consistent. Friend, if someone tells you to do exactly what the Bible tells you not to do, you know that person does not speak for God. So if you want to know the will of God for your life, you need to know the word. 
when you listen to Bible teachers, to preachers, to anyone that stands behind this pulpit, you listen with discernment. It takes work to sit and listen to a sermon. Some of you can say amen to that. I will not be offended. Because you're listening with discernment. Does that, does that line up with what the Bible says? If not, we should, we should go and ask questions. Did you mean to say this? I mean, how many of our TV preachers wouldn't get any more airtime if we, if we listened with discernment? Listen to what they're saying and, and having our Bibles open to see if it, it goes with what the Word says. Shemaiah was trying to lure Nehemiah here within the temple, knowing full well that it was only the duty of the priest that can enter. In fact, it was a special honor for priests to stand before the people and before the Lord, and it was not to be taken lightly. The priests were to teach and exemplify what it was meant to obey the Lord, and the priests could not enter any way they pleased. God took great lengths to explain how they were to do and perform their duty. In fact, if you want, you can read the book of Leviticus and understand all of that. God, Leviticus is not one you just skip over in your Bible reading, okay? There's, There's a reason it's there, friends. It's very explicit in what God has set up as a standard. It shows his holiness. And so priests of the Lord were dealing with serious matters, and Nehemiah knew this. And he knew he was not called to be a priest or to enter in the responsibilities of a priest, even if, even if it's true and his life is in grave danger. He knew that God's standards were the right standards, and he trusts in him, even if his life would end. See, God isn't wishy-washy on how we're to worship and approach him. God has a standard. I'm not sure how this sounds to you if you're new to the church or even new to reading the Bible. If you're not used to reading the the Christian Bible, especially Old Testament, you may be surprised to learn about the elaborate system of priests and sacrifices that God set up in the Old Testament. And yet the Bible clearly teaches that God provides for his people in a way we cannot provide for ourselves. If you are wondering what it looks like to be become a Christian, one good place to begin is to realize that you don't have everything you need within yourself to become one. You need Jesus Christ. Our goal as a church is not to tell you whatever will build you up and build up your self-esteem so that you can go back and pick yourself up by your bootstraps and deal with every problem that you have in life. In fact, I want to save you time by telling you can't do it. We are made in God's image, but all of us have fallen. And all the answers you need for life are not lying deep inside you, innate and untapped, just waiting to be brought out by an epiphany of self-understanding. That's not true. If you want to find God and understand who he is and what he's done, you have to come to the end of yourself. You must first realize your own limitations, what you can do and what you cannot do, 
and there you will find God. And it will always be on his terms. He's the one that set it up. He's the one that gives us the way of salvation. What we see so clearly here is that Shemaiah sold himself for a price. He is like Judas. He lived only for himself. And yet there will be another one, as we come to the New Testament, who lives for others. He would die for others, even though he didn't deserve it. And he would bring the final sacrifice putting away this old system that God gave us in the old, forever satisfying a holy and righteous God. We sang about it earlier. There is one gospel to which I cling, all else I count as lost, for there where justice and mercy meet, he saved me on the cross. Who is that he? But Jesus Christ, right? He satisfied God's righteous anger towards our sin forever. See, God would be righteous and he would be just to send every one of us to hell for our continual rebellion against him. But Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we can have salvation in him. Friends, if that doesn't make sense, I want you to find a Christian friend. I want you to find someone in the row who's smiling as I'm talking about this because they most likely understand this and are rejoicing in it. And I want you to ask him. Ask him questions. Find me. Read through the Gospel of Mark and consider what Jesus' life and words say about knowing God. Come find us as one of the pastors. We'd love to spend time walking through and answering your questions of what it means to follow God and to trust in Christ so that you can live for the glory of God. And that's what we learn here from Nehemiah as we end. He sought to live for the glory of God. Did you see, or was you read earlier, the response from the enemies in verse 16? Look again. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. See, the enemies tried to make uh, God's people afraid, but instead, they're the ones that are afraid. Isn't God great? And when God does a mighty work through his people, unbelief trembles. He says, when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. That's an interesting little sentence there. They... they, they, uh, fell greatly in their own esteem. The word esteem literally means I. And yet more than the I is implied here in Hebrew because the eyes were a mirror of a person's inner being. And so their esteem of themselves fell greatly. Their, their view of themselves fell greatly. What does that mean? It, 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 seems, it, it seems as though the nations had found their self-worth from the downfall of God's people. So as God's people fell and struggled, their view of themselves and self-importance grew. They found more meaning in themselves. But God exposes them and and builds up his people, and as he does this, their self-worth falls, and they are greatly afraid. 
There's a lesson for us, I think, here as Christians. Do we find our self-worth in the downfall of others? Are we disappointed to see others flourish and not us? Are you able to see Christ being glorified through others even when it's costly to you? How about this question? What brings us most joy? Is it Christ being exalted or is it us being exalted? What brings you more joy? Only you can answer this question. If you can learn to take a back seat in life and allow Christ to be magnified in all things, friends, it will have far-reaching consequences for your life and how you live. It will revolutionize things. If you can see Christ's exaltation is the greatest thing more than my exaltation. Well, this book of Nehemiah is most likely written as his memoir. And, and, and what we see throughout this is he's clear to make sure the reader knows who is the one who deserves the praise. He wants the people to see who is the one behind all this. And he wants people to know God is the one who deserves all the glory. And we should want to be people who do things that only can be done because God is helping us. We don't want to be people or a church who do things that can be explained away by ordinary human effort. We want people looking at us and shocked, like them, like them, afraid of themselves and their standing before God based upon what God does in and through us. Only God can produce the conversion, can save someone. Only God can convince people that the Bible is true in the face of all sorts of cultural lies. Only God, and this astounds me, only God can make sinners love one another. That's one of the reasons I love the local church. See, only God can make a church. Making people from all sorts of nationalities in backgrounds, in countries, in languages. They have learned as a preacher that I need to talk a little slower because not, English is not the first language for some of you people. That's a good lesson for me. And it's such a sweet thing. It really is. See, only God can do that. Only God can take people from different scopes and situations of life and bring them together to make a family. Only God can do that. And we should glory in that and what God does in and through the local church. It is God's method. He gave it to us for our good and for his glory. Well, I've left off a few verses here as we end. I'm going to cover them just briefly, but it'll lead into next week, Lord willing. As we just saw in verse 16, fear has fully gripped the hearts of God's enemies, and, and their response then is to stoke more fear in, in God's people. 
Just look briefly here in verse 17 through 19. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ariah. And his son, Jehoahan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. More letters are being sent now to to Nehemiah, and memories of Tobiah's previous attacks were forgotten as local businessmen essentially see financial reward emerging from a close relationship with Tobiah. Uh, Business is business, I'm sure they would say. Money does this to people. It will make us forget ethical responsibilities. And the love of money will distract us from living morally and upright in this world. These businessmen that we read of here were tied financially to a morally bankrupt man. And this is a power struggle to stoke fear in the heart of Nehemiah. And I wonder now who Nehemiah could trust. Who is it that he can trust? And we'll see that in chapter 7. For now, let's leave on this note. Nehemiah seems, again, over and over, to be a man who feared God more than he feared man. And as you read this book, you realize Nehemiah shows great courage. Courage is a quality that has been well-defined, not as an absence of fear, but more like a resolute action to do what is known to be right, no matter how much we are afraid. And what we see throughout this chapter and this book is that the Lord is sufficient, The Lord is sufficient for his people. Life for us is like that as well. And and Nehemiah's story is preserved for us here in the Bible to demonstrate to us as well that when we're faced with enemies on all sides, the Lord is sufficient. Whatever the suffering, there is always sufficient strength. As James says in chapter 4, He gives more grace, right? He gives more grace. The Lord is always sufficient to his people. So I pray that that would be an encouragement to us as we leave this chapter and Lord willing, step into chapter seven and see this long list of names and what God's done through his people. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your gracious gifts to us, to your people. Instead of allowing us to to wallow in this world alone, God, you provided the church. Instead of letting us struggle in our pursuit of you, you provided us with your spirit to live within us. You are always faithful to us. You always give us more grace right when we need it. And so we pray that you would strengthen our hands to withstand the enemies that try to slow our work here for the glory of God. Strengthen our hands, we pray, for your honor and glory. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.